Hello and welcome to Series 1 of CQC Connect. Welcome to this podcast from the Care Quality Commission. My name is Stuart Holdsworth and in this episode we're going to be looking at outstanding general practice, what it means to be outstanding, the work GP services do to get there and what it means for our patients. So right now I'm joined uh, by Dr Rosie Bennewith, our uh, Chief Inspector of Primary Medical Services. Thanks for joining us, Rosie, and you're quite a newbie to CQC, aren't you? I am, Stuart, yes. I've been here for six months now, and um, I'm a GP by background. I was a GP in Somerset for um, for a long time, actually, and um, I worked as both a GP partner for 12 years. I was a salaried GP, did a lot of out-of-hours services, um, and as well as my general practice um, career, I've also been a clinical commissioner. I've worked with NICE as their vice chair, and I've also uh, worked with an academic health science network. Um, I've got a long-standing history uh, of being interested in improvement and um, really keen with this role to think about how we look to improve general practice across the country. How many uh, practices do we currently currently rate as outstanding? So. Um, we look at about 7,700 GP services, although that number is changing all the time with the changing landscape um, in health and care. But of those, we rate about 5% as outstanding. We're really lucky because we we know in general practice the quality is good. We've got um, 90% good, roughly 5% outstanding. So, um, so the quality of care in this country is very good. Um, we just want to see how we can improve it further. So, what sort of things uh, should a should a should a practice think about if they wanted to become outstanding? What are we looking for? So, there's a whole variety of of things that can actually lead us to look at uh, rating a practice outstanding. Um, firstly, I think leadership is key within the practice. Practice. So, leadership from the practice manager, leadership from the GPs working within the service, leadership from other people within uh, the practice. Um, anyone can be a good leader in a practice. I think it's actually looking at being clear about uh, setting out what you want that practice to achieve, thinking about how uh, you involve patients and um, the public in developing what the practice does, um, looking at really um, uh, leading um, to to constantly think about the patient at the centre of, of what you're delivering. So I think leadership is really important and making sure that uh, you bring people amongst the practice with you and they understand what you're trying to do and you help develop those leaders of the future as well as part of what you're doing. So I think that's the first area. I think one of the key, um, moving on from that around leadership development, we're also really keen about staff development, staff recruitment, making sure you've got the right teams in place within the practice that are going to meet the, the needs of the patients, making sure that people are trained well, that they're supervised properly, that um, that they have the development opportunities and making sure that people within the practice can actually speak up about things that they're worried about. So um, what what is the culture of the practice like? Do, do people feel comfortable working there? Do, do they feel like it's a safe environment to work in? Do they feel that they can talk about mistakes easily, talk about things that go wrong easily, um, learn from those as a team? And do they feel that there's a, a relationship between all members um, 
of the practice team that enables it to be a, a very good high performing team there. So that's a, another aspect. Um, I think there's something very important about how a practice works within its local community and we've seen some great examples of practices in their local communities um, uh, reaching out to people in the community, so reaching out to local schools, colleges, going out and engaging in village halls, um, really understanding what their population needs are and addressing them and there's some there's some fantastic examples of people doing that whether they've got older populations that they're caring for with lots of complex need whether they're looking after people who are homeless um, whether they're looking after students um, it, I don't think it matters we, we don't see any kind of difference with the what population the outstanding practices are looking after it's more about their real understanding of those population needs and how they can address them. Um, I think it's also um, how the practice learns from other people. So um, a lot of the outstanding practices we work with, they, they're outwards looking. They look at uh, what the best practice is, how they can learn from others, how they can adopt best practice from um, other providers and, and really look at how they continually modify and change the way they do things to improve their services. So those are some of the things that I think actually lead to an outstanding outstanding practice. So I'm hearing a number of messages there, something about continual improvement mm. coming out quite strongly there, but also this nuance about knowing your community, knowing the area in which you you live. It's not doesn't seem like it's a one-size-fits-all approach is what I'm hearing from you there. And then this thing about leadership and staff development and well-being and how people feel in that practice, is that important? That's really important. Um, there's a huge amount of evidence that's been generated over the years in lots of different settings about the culture of an organisation and the outcomes for patients and the public. And um, in, in the Acute Trust, for example, there's been some research that looks at the organisational culture compared to the number of infections they get from surgical sites. I have, I really believe that actually if, if people can really generate a culture of continuous improvement, of learning from things that go wrong, of sharing best practice and learning, um, learning from each other, then that will improve patient care. And I think that is is very much linked to how the team works together. Hierarchies are generally not um, helpful if you have a significant hierarchy because you might then get people who are scared to raise concerns if something's going wrong. This needs to be something that's worked across the whole practice team and it's not uh, not just in, in one part of the team such as the GPs. It's really important that the receptionists or the um, admin teams can can ask questions and be part of that decision making within the practice. So there's something there about openness and you mentioned speak up earlier and that willingness to be able to speak up and, and you know say if something goes wrong. That's right and challenge things that are, are not working well um, and also to learn together I think um, you know we still we know that um, harm is uh, harm from services in in healthcare across the world is one of the top 10 killers still um, we need to be able to to manage that everyone makes mistakes it's it's human nature to make mistakes we need to put in 
make sure that people learn from them and have the processes and the culture so that they can actually learn from mistakes and be able to talk freely about them so we don't repeat them again. So when we're going out and we're, we're inspecting, we're looking at these, these practices, are we looking at, does that mean we'll be looking at different things in different practices? So, you know, online providers, small providers, large providers... So we have the same framework whichever providers we're going out to look at, um, whether you're small or, or a large provider. I think that different size providers have different challenges in terms of how they can um, meet the requirements. So um, a small provider, it, it, they, they need to be able to meet the requirements um, that we look for and that are all published very widely on our website. Um, in the same way as a large provider. I think sometimes um, the larger providers might uh, have more of a challenge in terms of um, bringing all of their staff together and and um, if they've got multiple locations then it's more difficult in terms of disseminating knowledge and information and communication sometimes. So I think there's there's challenges in, in both but um, we we have an approach which looks at all providers in the same way to look at, um, from a person's point of view, are they getting safe, effective, caring, responsive treatment? And I think um, I think that's really important. If you're a member of the public, you want that same level of care, whether you're in a, a practice that's looking after 2,000 patients to, as to whether you're in a practice that's got 40,000 patients. And so we need to very much look at it from, from a person's perspective who's using the services. And you mentioned earlier there's, there's, there's information on, on the website that providers could go to. Are there, is there any other information that, that would be good for providers and the public to know about how we, we work? Yeah, certainly. So there's lots of information on the website. Um, there's all of our guidance. Um, there's the, the Mythbusters, which are very helpful in terms of lots of questions that often providers have and, uh, and clinicians have about how things work. Um, we've also, uh, we wrote a report called Driving Improvement in General Practice um, that is, is worth having a look at if people haven't already. Um, and there's also lots of case studies as well in terms of looking at, at practices that are doing well and what we can learn from them. And so if we've got a provider that's that's currently looking at good and is wanting to go to outstanding, is there any sort of advice you could you could give them in terms of how they can move towards that outstanding rating? Yeah, certainly. So I think I think firstly have a look at all of the um, the information that we've got and, and really start to think about what they're doing within the practice. Um, I think have a look at, really think about things from a person's point of view who's using the services. How easy is it to get into your services in the first place? What's your appointment system like? Can people get access to your services when they need it? Um, are there different ways that people can communicate with the practice? Um, things like how, how uh, how are your leaders being um, developed and supported within your practice? How are you communicating your vision if you are a leader within a practice out to the rest of your staff? Um, how clear are you about the values of the organisation in, in which you're working and how are those communicated and, and developed with your teams? Do you have good staff training in place? How do you support your staff if, if something goes wrong? How do you support your staff to develop and, and improve? What is your culture like within your services? We've talked about how do um, we get a feeling of what that culture is like from the patient surveys and the, the staff surveys and the other things that can help inform that. 
How are you working within your local community? I think this is particularly um, important now we're moving towards primary care networks. So is there an opportunity working with other practices to look at working with your community, working with the voluntary sector, um, look at working with all of the other partners in, in that area? So what's your relationship like with your pharmacies, with your care homes? Um, how are you working with your acute trust colleagues? I think there's lots of opportunities to build those relationships and really look at joined up care for people going forward. Um, I think it's um, also thinking through how are you really supporting the holistic care of a person? So um, how are you managing to support someone's emotional needs as well as their physical um, and mental health needs? Um, and I think also with people, we know there's a growing number of people with long-term conditions um, and often many long-term conditions. How are practices thinking about how they empower patients and people to, to be involved in their decision making, looking at really embedding shared decision making and care planning, um, looking at um, end of life care as well. Those are the type of areas we really need to look at. And I think the other thing that I would say is practices need to think about how they know um, a change is a, is a positive improvement, so what are they doing to measure um, the changes that they're making? How are they using data within their organisations? Um, do they have people who are skilled or, or qualified in quality improvement methodology and how are they using that to, to relentlessly drive that improvement? And I think those are all skills that people can develop and really help to drive that improvement in care. I think there's something there about you know, not sitting in isolation and just doing what we've always done. What what I'm taking from what you've just said is there's something about this external look at what's around us and this learning. You mentioned learning a couple of times, you know, who can we speak to? Who can we mm. talk to about this? How do we get a feel for what's going on? And, and this piece about data, how does the data back up what we know or what we need to find out? That's right. And I think there are huge opportunities to, to learn from others um, and there's a lot of information on the internet and you, you can, whether it's the Royal College of GPs or there's places like the Primary Care Home website or NHS England have lots of case studies. So there's lots of different organisations people can look to to get ideas and information. And I think that there are opportunities as practices come together in primary care networks to start sharing that learning and, and um, understanding. Some of the things that people are doing will work in their practice, some of them may not, but actually being aware and, and testing it out in your practice. Um, I think data is really important. Data um, for several reasons. One is that it helps to really enable people to understand what is going on. For example, if you look at demand and capacity within a practice, um, do you know how many people are coming into your services? Do you know how many people are trying to come into your service but aren't able to get through on the phone? Do you know how much capacity you need to be able to deal with that demand on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, some of the basic information like that is really important to understand if you're designing your services to really meet the needs of the patients. Um, also, if you don't measure changes that you make, you don't know if you're actually improving anything. I think that the, they quote that over 80% of changes that are made don't actually become sustainable, and that's very often because people 
a don't uh, don't use a systematic approach to implementing change and b very often um, will not measure things to see what the impact of that has been and then very often decisions are then made on anecdote and feelings rather than actually what are the the data telling you so i think from the outstanding practices that we see they really have a really good grasp on the the data that's important to their practice i think we're, we're rich in data, we're poor on intelligence, people say, and actually I think that's very true. It's finding what are the key measures that you're going to look at that actually help you to understand what your practice is like um, and really start to have a focus on those. Yeah, so have, have a good grasp of that. Know your business. Yeah. Um, know what's happening outside and around your business as, as well, I, I suppose, your practice. That's right. Um, just just one one final question then, Rosie. Just on the, the way that you think that CQC providers, others, we can all work together. How do we all work together better so that the we, we move more practices into outstanding to support the you know the wider system of healthcare? Yes. I think there's there's lots of ways we can get get better at doing that. So the first thing is actually we're continuously looking at how we work. We want to become more intelligence driven in, in the way we work so we really can look at um, supporting practices to improve and using the information that we collect at the CQC to be able to do that. So feedback to us is very important about, um, about how your interactions with us um, are working. We want to build those relationships between practices and inspectors and the new annual regulatory review is an opportunity for people to build those relationships with their inspectors to find out more about the CQC and also to help the inspectors understand more about the context in which the practice is working. We know there's a lot of change out in primary care at the moment we know that practices we're getting more and more primary care at scale providers who have multiple practices um, we have a lot of uh, practices merging and a lot of changes and we need to understand what's the context of that how do we support uh, the right decisions um, within practices particularly when they're merging or taking over vulnerable practices um, and the annual regulatory review is one way of, of being able to build those relationships we're also trying what is, is termed as sandboxing, which is a new term on me, but it's, it's basically a way of us working with providers with new ideas and innovations to be able to understand how we regulate those properly. We're doing a lot of work around the online uh, digital space with that. We're looking at, um, we've been working with 15 at scale providers over the last year to really understand what is it like being a, an at scale provider and how do we make sure that our regulation is appropriate for the the different models of care that emerge so we're very keen to work with providers understand these new models and then adapt appropriately so it sounds like the cqc are taking that learning methodology as well and and just testing things out and learning from what's going on in the wide system of healthcare Absolutely, absolutely. And we are very committed internally uh, in the CQC to looking at a quality improvement approach um, and really learning from what we do, continually developing um, and strengthening our regulation so that we, we ultimately we need to make sure people are not at risk and people do um, receive high quality care and, um, and so we, our methodologies will continually change to be able to enable us to do that. 
Well, we'll leave it there. It's Dr. Rosie Bennewith, uh, Chief Inspector of Primary Medical Services. Thanks very much for joining us. So I'm now joined by two of our national clinical advisors, Janet Hall and Tim Ballard. And uh, I suppose, first of all, I want to find out a little bit about uh, what it takes to become a national clinical advisor. Janet, hello. Can hello. you tell us something about yourself, first of all? Um, so I'm a GP in Sheffield. Uh, I work as a locum GP there. And I've been a national clinical advisor for primary care at scale and the defence medical services. Right, excellent. And how did you get involved with uh, CQC? Um, I've been a SPA for CQC since 2014 when uh, SPAs were invited to come along and join CQC and go out on inspections and it was from the work with that I, I became really interested in regulation in primary care. Excellent, thank you. And, and Tim, what about, what about your own journey? Oh, so I'm still in clinical practice. I'm a GP by background. Um, I work in one of the most rural practices in England now, uh, now just working as a, a, a a locum one day a week um, in, in the same practice but previously being an inner city GP and a rural GP single-handed rural GP I've been a GP trainer did a lot of work at the college before I came over here I was vice chair of the college of, of GPs for three years and came here when I finished doing that and my roles here at CQC are as a national clinical advisor like Janet um, with responsibility for online care both in the NA and in the independent sector. Um, the independent primary care um, itself, again across the whole of primary care, so that's a really wide variation and a, a wide range of uh, types of practice that range from what you would see as standards of private general practice as in Harley Street and places like that, that are typically in the biggest cities but it also encompasses um, other areas of medicine non-therapeutic male circumcision services slimming clinics um, and, and services that um, you know that that are really quite peculiar to the independent uh, independent sector. Oh, thank you. Um, thank and on top of that, recently I've taken over oversight of main, mainstream general practice within uh, the primary medical services director here at CQC. So one of the well, the topic of this podcast is outstanding. So I'm going to go to, I think actually I'll start with, with you first, Janet. Mm. Um, from your own experience and, and in general, what is it that makes a GP provider outstanding for you? I think it's a mixture of things. Um, and I think it's um, across the organisation, it's the culture, the leadership, um, a, a spirit of inquiry um, and innovation, um, wanting to aim for excellence, um, involving patients in their care and caring for their staff. And Tim, what, what, what does it look like for you, outstanding practice? Well, I think much as Janet said, the, the, the themes are, whilst they might be sort of seen in slightly different ways across the sector, hold exactly the same principles. So it's really good, strong clinical governance, uh, probably driven by really solid ethical principles, wanting to actually strive for excellence, as Janet said, really wanting to deliver excellent care as the most important thing for the organisation, rather than being part of a, a of a business plan, and, and that's particularly important that we see, when we see that in the independent sector. Um, 
I think it's another hallmark of, of outstanding practices are ones that really actually understand the patient context, both for individuals, but, but for the, um, the environment and the culture of the patients that actually make up their specific practice list and really working with them using patient, the patient voice both individually as Janet says um, and as a group to help them to mould the service so that they can deliver high you know high levels of really consistent access and quality care. So just drilling down a little bit more in, into that question then Janet um, in particular outstanding practice what might that look like in terms of providers at scale, because that's a, you know, it's, a, it's 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 opening it up a bit there, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, we did a pilot last year of providers at scale and looking at what might actually make them outstanding, and also looking at how their head office functions and how that might impact on on the care provided. And we we found a number of factors um, that that contributed to a practice being rated outstanding and in fact we, we found several providers who did have outstanding ratings um, and were outstanding across different population groups and in, in different uh, key questions. So I think as many of the, the attributes that make them outstanding um, are common to all practices and in fact probably all organisations uh, across the health sector. So it's that spirit of inquiry and learning, of always wanting to seek to do more, of always wanting to um, understand how things are working and make them better. Um, it's that focus on the, the culture of the organisation, um, empowering staff, making them feel valued, making sure that their well-being is looked after. Um, but also, as well as looking internally, looking outwards and um, seeing how they work with their local communities, um, how they might work with other external stakeholders, local authorities, uh, third sector or charities, that sort of thing, in order to serve the community. And like Tim was saying, you know, understanding their population as a whole and seeing what they can do in their particular area to improve things for their population. So you might have a, a particular characteristic that works really well in one area but it may not be applicable in another because it's a different population so it's understanding that their focus their population and working to improve that so i'm hearing that's not a one size fits all you're looking for innovation creativity you're looking yeah. for an understanding really absolutely of what's going yeah. on in that wider system yeah um, and then also having the data to be able to understand how they're performing, to understand um, where they're improving, where things need to be improved. So many of the providers at scale have the uh, capacity, because they might have back office support, to be able to gather data on a bigger scale than smaller practices can do, to be able to analyse that data and to be able to interpret it for the, for the benefit of patients. Um, as well as back office functions looking at data, they might be able to have that back office function to support the individual practices that are part of their organisation, um, to do the HR processes, to do the finance, that takes the pressure off the front facing practices so they can concentrate on patient care, but also um, still make sure that all the important systems and processes are running smoothly behind the scenes. That could also include administration, um, it could include doing research, um, it could include doing audits, um, and many of the, the larger scale uh, organisations have a real focus on training, education and uh, improvement of their staff. So either um, training people in-house, taking on apprentices and working them through the system to become healthcare assistants or administrators, 
um, taking on uh, nurses who are in their pre-registration years um, and making sure that they understand what general practice is about so that they might want to actually come and be practice nurses in the future. Um, supporting training of physicians associates or pharmacists or um, paramedics or other people that are coming to support the delivery of primary care and making sure that training and education have a real focus um, in there. Also um, empowering patients um, and that isn't just meaning to empower them in the care that they've uh, that they're having to help them understand their conditions to provide them with treat, te teaching and education um, but it, it also um, means empowering them to be able to have a say in the organisation, not being scared of, of patients and listening to how things can be improved from their perspective and engaging them in the delivery of some of those. So I'm hearing there's a lot of importance placed on the people, the patients and the staff as yeah. well. So empowering both sets, would you, would you say? Yeah. Uh, so staff in terms of their, so the, the patients in terms of the care, but the staff in terms of their own development and, and, and maybe giving the... Uh, the the empowerment to, to move on and, and to be better and be more creative with things. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from the leadership. Um, so it's having leaders that care about mm. how their staff are, leaders that see the benefit of investing in their staff, um, having leaders that are role models and inspiring their workforce um, to be able to achieve bigger and greater things, and also having the ability to ensure that people are achieving their potential, um, that people are um, able to understand what their role means and be able to achieve that, monitoring their progress, checking that their competences and working within their competences um, and giving them opportunities to develop uh, and trusting them to do that. Tim, if I could come to you mm -hmm. and ask you about online providers, because yep. this is um, an, an, an area which I think could do with a bit more exp explanation. Um, w w first of all, tell me what an online provider looks like and what um, any examples of outstanding practice might be that we've seen already. Okay, so I mean, a, a lot of the themes actually that Janet has actually said just run across all of health and social care, I think, and, uh, and rather than rehearsing all of them, I think we'll take a lot of what Janet said as being absolutely spot on for online primary care as well. So online primary care comes in various guises. Uh, CQC really started getting involved with the online, the provision of online uh, primary care services in the independent sector actually after a, a regulation 28 notice from a coroner which was uh, detailed the sad death of a, of a patient who'd accessed medicines online um, and we were asked as an organisation to actually review the quality of these services. That started in about 2016 and there were around 45 providers who are registered with us in the independent sector um, and we, we've spent a lot of time, we've published the State of Online Care which you can actually see on our website, it's publicly available on the website which details all of the lessons that we learned from it. So to answer the question specifically, that what are they? Um, in the independent sector, they fall into two broad categories. There's the category which we've called synchronous providers, which in effect use a new modality, if you can call Skyping and you know technology like that new now, um, using technology like that to bring a, a doctor and a patient together 
um, in a fairly traditional model where the patient has a problem, the doctor tries to find out and help and, and work with the patient to identify what the problem is, what might have caused it, and then to develop a, a, you know, a sensible and safe, appropriate management plan with them um, to, to manage their problem. So that, that's the synchronous um, group of providers. Um, the big difference we've seen emerge in that group are that some some manage their business and their their approach to care purely in the independent sector so they have no other records to actually go on and others are actually developing so despite them being in the independent sector organizations like push doctor for example to name just one um, now offer a service to nhs practices where when they consult they consult with patients on a registered gp list and they have direct immediate access to the patient record gp at hand is a similar model um, supported by Babylon. Um, the, the whole other group of providers are the, the asynchronous providers where a patient will fill in a, a web form uh, which is usually, um, it's usually typified by um, being relating to one particular treatment or one particular condition and then without direct dialogue with the patient, um, a doctor or another prescriber, independent prescriber, will review that information and decide whether they think it's safe and appropriate to prescribe. Um, the, the risk levels, I think, are very different for both of them. Um, so the, the challenge for online providers who are doing um, video type consultations is to work out where the safe boundary is about how much you can actually assess in an online environment and where it's more appropriate to bring a patient down so that you can actually do a, a, a you know, typical face-to-face uh, assessment and then check biometric data, check their temperature, their pulse oximetry and everything else that would normally be continued, you know, carried out in the assessment of a sick patient. Um, for the for the asynchronous providers who are questionnaire based, um, the real um, key behind how safe they are is about the scope of practice that they decide to try and tackle in advance. And what we've seen with the ones who've stayed registered with us is that they've moved away from riskier areas of, of medicine. I, I mentioned the, the patient who died following an overdose um, of medicines that were procured online. And with the ones who, with the providers who've stayed registered with CQC, we've now seen a move away from the prescribing of medicines. Uh, with the um, you know with the tendency to uh, be misused um, away to much safer areas of medicine typically things like the management of erectile dysfunction the pre prescribing of viagra like drugs male pattern baldness being managed online which are safer areas um, of care for this type of provider i suppose one of the um, <clears throat> in both of your areas we must see quite a lot of change and quite a lot of innovation. Um, in my mind, I, th I think immediately of, of your area, Tim, in terms of the, the online providers, you know, being online, it sort of lends itself to mm -hmm. moving swiftly in a, in a digital way. Are, are we seeing lots of that? And, and to what extent does that present a challenge or an opportunity for those sorts of providers to be outstanding? Yeah, so, so I, I think the, the 
there has been a rapid development in this area in the independent sector, but of course, importantly, there is a move for all practices to develop online services and deliver online services to their patients within the NHS as well. And really importantly, in that area, the, the, it's innately going to be safer because it will be underpinned by access to the patient's continuous medical record, which just makes the whole delivery of healthcare in any setting, uh, I think, a, a safer prospect. Um, so there, there is a tendency to put the cart before the horse, really, I think, is, is one big challenge, that, um, that the modality becomes the most important thing. And what we've learned from all the inspections that we've done is that uh, the most important thing always remains the delivery of safe and effective healthcare uh, for the patients that they're actually serving. And that can't come at the expense of, you know, wanting to use new, to new technology in innovative ways. Um, I think that the other thing to remember, when we look at the, the areas of practice which have been outstanding in the online environment that we've seen, um, most of them are around the governance and, and the demonstrating exactly the features that Janet was referring to earlier, which was uh, working with th their staff, uh, wanting to understand the needs of patients, uh, not accepting um, poor quality or substandard care, and actually being driven towards high quality, thinking about continuous innovation in, uh, and quality improvement, but not for its own sake, because it is likely to lead to better patient care. And Janet, in terms of the um, GPs at scale, I mean, I suppose you've, you've, you've seen, uh, you, you must see, I mean, that's a changing world, isn't it? There must be lots going on in that environment. What, what, what have you seen? I think the thing with primary care at scale is it's a, a very broad field. There are numerous different examples from huge super practices with just one registration to groups of practices coming together to work together with um, a back office function, perhaps just doing administration, to others where practices are working together uh, with, with a, a sort of head office function that um, is keeping an eye on each of the individual practices, sharing learning across the practices. Um, so it, it does vary considerably. I think one of the really important things with primary care at scale outstanding and making sure that you're delivering the best service you can is, is the safety aspect and the, the organisation's approach to safety and how they manage that. And it's having an open culture where you actually value those experiences where things have perhaps not gone to plan or uh, things have gone wrong. And instead of it being a blame game, actually looking um, at how things have happened, looking at the systems and processes that have led to that, finding out how they can be improved. Um, and sharing learning across not just their own organisation and all the staff within that one organisation, but actually sharing it between the practices within their primary care at scale group, or even more widely uh, to across sort of primary care networks or um, CCGs or, or even nationally. And I think that that is where it's really important with primary care at scale, where they can make a big difference because they have that opportunity to share more widely. And many of the primary care at scale organisations are taking on some of these innovative online systems and incorporating those into their organisations. Um, and so that brings another dimension to the safety, having to, to look at how you actually manage those risks that Tim mentioned within your organisation, across your organisation. 
I think as we move forward, at the moment, primary care networks aren't registered with us unless they were an organisation in their own right forming one single primary care network. But I, I think um, that the, the sort of many of the principles that we've learned from the primary care at scale pro project could well be useful for primary care networks as they develop their, their governance systems and their safety mechanisms and their monitoring systems to see how that those processes can be embedded. And I think one other thing that I'd like to just expand on a little bit is that, that it's important to remember that the delivery of an outstanding or excellent online service for patients is more than just about rapid access. Um, and the, the other thing which I think is really important about outstanding practice is that we see all of the features that Janet's talked about, about the way that practices respond to the patients and the needs of their staff, but that needs to be built on a really form, a really firm and solid platform of safe and effective care. Occasionally we see some, some practices who, who actually run away with lots and lots of ideas and the, the core business of delivering consistent safe consistent access to safe and effective health care can sometimes be um, sort of marginalised in the pursuit of doing whizzy things and it's important that outstanding practice is always built on a really solid foundation of really safe and effective care. That's, that's the word that I was going to, hearing loud and clear from your responses there Tim, this firm foundation, the sort of core infrastructure that is in place for a provider to be successful and to be able to do these critical and that's what I was also hearing from you Janet and in terms of that training and culture and embedding of values and lessons learnt and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean as we mentioned at the beginning the leadership is key to that to be able to, to um, promote that within their organisation and yes safety is absolutely fundamental you want the care to be effective but many of the outstanding organisations also have an inherent caring nature to them um, and they, they go that above and beyond what most practices will, will do. They will be altruistic, they'll be values-based, they'll help those people who are vulnerable in society, not just because they have to to tick a box, but actually because they want to do that and go that, that step further and, and are responding to the care that their population needs. Be the sort of organisation that you'd want to work for yourself. Absolutely. Um, just, 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 just to finish off, is there anything that we think CQC providers or anyone else needs to do towards, you know, I don't know, moving more providers to be outstanding? What what can we do? I think sharing good practice, um, and I know CQC are really keen on doing that. Um, sharing the characteristics that we've seen in outstanding organisations um, to enable other organisations to be able to look look up to those to be able to see how they can incorporate them into their own organisations um, and I think teaching or training inspectors and spas to know where to look. I mean often when you go into an organisation you get a feel for a place which is something that's quite difficult to quantify and yes we all have our lists when we go on inspection to, to sort of check that we've got policies in place, check that care is being delivered effectively um, and, and that things are working okay, that the, the that those sorts of things are in place but I think also having pushing a little bit further to find out where the organizations are going above and beyond and, and allowing practices to to tell that story looking for good looking for outstanding basically 
I think when we go, well, certainly when I go on an inspection, I go in assuming a practice is good. Um, to be outstanding, I think they've got to demonstrate something above and beyond what is normally there. And I would like to, to think that practices have the opportunity to do that. And to be outstanding, you have to be able to demonstrate impact of that care. So it's not just doing the things because doing something in one organisation may actually deliver outstanding care to that population, but doing it in another one may not have the same impact. So as we talked about before, it's knowing your population, looking at the data to see what's where you're at at the moment and innovating to, to find ways to improve. But it's then also having that data and information to be able to demonstrate that what you've done is useful, is effective and is making a difference to your population. And Tim, any thoughts from yourself? Just really about, um, I, th I think our primary function as a regulator is of course to hold providers to account against the regulations, that's what regulation is. Uh, and I think sometimes we fight shy as an organisation to help and facilitate improvement and to signpost providers to resources that we are aware of. Whilst we shouldn't be saying this is how you should do it, because that's always the responsibility of the provider, where, where some providers, usually not at the outstanding end of the spectrum, but where providers are a little bit you know, lost in some areas, I, I think that we should be um, more confident about signposting them to particularly useful resources so that one day they might be outstanding too. Tim and Janet, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your valuable insight. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. You can check out other episodes in this series on how we regulate innovation, this year's State of Care report, and how the public can share their experiences of care with us. And look out in the future for more podcasts from the CQC. Mm -hmm.